Good morning, Crestmont Alliance family. It's good to see you all. Merry Christmas Advent season. It's great to be here with you all this morning and see you all at one time. And I thank you for the role that you've been playing in my life this way because I've pictured you all right there all week long. Just, you know, <laughs> that's right. Pictured, and there y'all are. <laughs> No, I love you dearly. If you haven't met me, my name is Christine Scott. I'm a member of the leadership team here at Crestmont. And it is my privilege to be on a rotating team of, um, of uh, people that get to present the Word of God to you in the morning. So um, here we go. I recently got new, new glasses. So there you go. These are they. Um, and the nature of my prescription, being in my 50s where all manner of things are falling apart, um, is I have three levels of, of prescriptions in my, in my eyeglasses. I have the super long distance and the mid-range screen and the reading glasses. And, and I had those in my other glasses too, and I got used to that and the steps and all the things and, and just the dizziness and wobbliness. I never wore glasses. I d took it probably for a you know, took advantage of, of the fact that I never wore glasses. So getting used to stronger and stronger prescriptions. So this time when I went into the doctor, I said, I'd like to try contacts. I not only want to have these glasses, you know, that are frameless and cool like Angel Bailey. I picked them because I thought if I could be a little more like Angel Bailey, that would up my notch. And uh, so, you know, a cool factor, right? Don't we all agree? Anyway... So I tried the contacts, and he said, well, contacts are a little bit different. I said, okay, you know, I'm just getting them in and out will be a trick. But um, they said, yeah, you're going to have one eye for distance, and the other eye is going to be multifocal where, it's, where it is, you know, screen and reading. I'm like, okay, I'm game, and that works. And the doctor explained, you know, pupils dilating everything. You won't see it and everything. So I got them in. I was crying for a few weeks. I went shopping with a friend, and it was just kind of, I don't know, this Bambi experience. You know, it's like this whole new world. It's like there's nothing here. And I look around, and, like, my, my contacts don't keep up with my eyeball, and it gets a little blurry. And then, you know, it was just a, it was, it was a trip, and it made me a little dizzy and headachy and everything. Well, then I went back into the doctor, and I said, okay, I like it. I think I'm going to keep the contacts. Let's order those. I wouldn't dare wear them this morning, though, um, <clears throat> with all of this focusing. But I, but I said, um, I I'm not sure I see as well as I do with glasses. And they looked around and they said, oh, we're so sorry. We're, we mislabeled those. This contact should be in this eye, and this contact should be in that eye. Maybe that'll help. <laughs> it did help. So I like that better, and I still need readers, but that's another issue. But I was thinking a lot of that because, I mean, when you are trying to see and contacts, and it affects everything, you know, your eyeballs, except sleep. Sleep was a pleasure. <coughs> and I was thinking that as we are looking at this passages, passages of Scripture, because I've chosen the whole Bible as my text this morning. It'll be 20 minutes to three hours, or we'll have sermons every night this week. We'll get through it. 
But as we're looking at the Passover feast in the Old Testament and how that points to Jesus, there is, as we heard, one epic story that's going on through Scripture. And we need those lenses. We need to be able to look from a distance and see the whole story. We need to be dropped down in and see how one story connects to the other, that mid-range mid-range vision. And then we need to have our reading glasses on where we can sit in a night in a group of people in an ancient culture and imagine what that was like and the relevance for them and what God was teaching them and what he's teaching us through it. So I hope that you don't get dizzy. I hope that your contacts are in the right eye as we go through this. I like to think of this journey that we're going to be on together as the Polar Express for our Christmas season. This is our Polar Express train ride, and we're going to make four stops. So we're going to make four stops through Scripture, and the first stop is going to be where pick up where we left off last week. So we're going to go from Genesis and there's to Revelation, and our main text is kind of in the middle of the sermon. So I'm not going to have you look up that, but if you want to put your finger into Exodus 12, that will be our longest passage for the day and where we're going to really try and sit for a minute in um, the Passover feast of the Old Testament. But uh, I recently heard a quote that jumped out at me, especially in light of our sermon last week, the setup of how sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve. And it was this, the scariest lie, this is Francis Chan, that is in our American culture today is twofold, two scary lies. Number one, that we are good people. Number two, that God will not judge sin. And in our American culture, if you talk to many people and you ask them about God and what they believe, a lot of times, I get this at work, maybe you do too, people's response will be, I'm a good person, and that is their operating system of their relationship with God is this hope that they will be a good enough person. And the other thing is that, well, God, isn't he a loving God? Well, then he won't judge sin. And neither one of those things, as we're going to see, those are the two rails that we're going to run on, is that God's love is merciful to the sinner and just toward the sin. And that's set up from the beginning of our story. So let's look back. Our first stop on the Polar Express is going to be, for you alliteration people, the promise. The first stop is the promise step, which was last week in Genesis 3. We learned that sin entered the world through Adam and Eve, and we know that we are affected by sin. We know it. We see it in children, in babies, in toddlers, in teenagers, in our own selfish desires. One commentator said, even if you didn't believe in God's perfect law and what he set out as the Ten Commands, even if you didn't believe in a standard, you can't even meet your own expectations. If you just had your own law that governed your life, There are days that you sit down at the end of the day and you've disappointed yourself. And a lot of days that someone else has disappointed you because they didn't meet your standard. But no matter what your standard might be for yourself, whether you're a believer in God or not, God's standard is higher, unattainable for the the human with the highest standard. And we have all broken that from, 
from the time that we were born. We were born into this. So the consequences of that, because there is a cause and an effect, we learned last week are broken relationships. My identity with, my relationship with God has been severed. He's holy, I'm not. My identity with myself, I am not who um, God says I am. I'm a sinner. I'm, I, I have a broken identity. I don't identify with him. And I have broken relationships with the world. So this is the problem set up in the third chapter of the Bible. The problem that for the rest of the epic story of Scripture, God is pointing us toward the way of redemption, the way to undo, buy back this problem that we have been dealt from the time that we were born. So there is a promise, and we read this last week, the promise for evil to be eradicated and for our relationships to be restored with God, ourselves, and each other. And the scripture was, so the Lord said to the serpent, Satan, because you have done this, he, Eve's offspring, will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So back in the beginning of scripture, God already had a promise. He had a plan to undo this problem that we find ourselves in. So as we look at the epic nature of scripture, as we look at um, the, the narrative, it's bigger than Lord of the Rings. It's bigger than Star Wars. It's bigger than Pride and Prejudice. It has all of those features and elements. But if you like all of those epics, good versus evil and villains and all of those small stories, it's, it's grander than that. And it goes over this span of thousands of years. So I want to ask you a question and just think about it. What would your first answer be? But if I ask you this question, what would you think? Who is your driver? Who is your driver? You might think about that. When I was asked this question, I looked at the person. I said, excuse me, I'm driving Miss Daisy. I don't have a chauffeur. Are you talking the driver in my life? Was anybody, were any of you confused? Like, who's your driver? What? I don't know how to answer that question. I'm not sure. Well, then the question was asked to me. It was a gentleman at work. And then he turns on and he like lowers his belt like this and he pops out his history and goes, who's your driver? And I went, oh, I think, I think I'm getting that this is like a Southern thing, right? Are, some of you are dialed in. Some of you are still confused, right? And I said, oh, okay. Like... And he said, NASCAR, who's your driver? And I went, oh, okay. I don't know any. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure who my driver is. I don't know any drivers. And he rattles off a few like that. And he says, no, oh, in the South, this is how men strike up conversations with each other. We say, who's your driver? So if I were to see that in any book or anything, I would need a context and a culture in which to define this question, right? Who's your driver? So when we're looking at scripture and we're looking at ancient cultures, it is really important that we don't just look at it. It's impossible to check our culture entirely, but it's really important that we don't just look at scripture from our American standpoint and say, oh, they must have felt this way. Oh, they must have done that. Oh, this is how it must have been. But there are common experiences that we have as humans. So there are some correlations. So I hope we get that just right as we go on. But 
God set up from the beginning of time a language of sacrifice. We're very squeamish about this in our culture. We don't talk about sacrifice and the blood the way that the scripture does and as much as they do. But let's look at a few scriptures. Genesis 3.21, immediately following the promise of you will, he will crush his head, Satan's head, and he will bite his heel, the Redeemer. Right after that, the Lord God made garments, animal skin, of animal skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Remember, they had the fig leaves and the things that were not sufficient. What they used to cover themselves out of their shame was not sufficient as a solution. But God set up from the very beginning, he begins this language of sacrifice. And these animals had to be sacrificed in order to clothe the nakedness and the shame that Adam and Eve had brought on. So God starts, and he starts bringing in the context and the culture of what his redemption and his redeeming language is. Even the next story, Cain and Abel, God prefers the animal sacrifice of Abel to the plant sacrifice of Cain. God is saying, this is the way of my favor. This is the way my redemption will come. And as we go on through scripture, Abram is chosen. He's God's chosen people. And do you know why he's so, so special? Because God chose him. And he went. There was... God made him special. God's choosing makes him special. And there's just a tidbit for you. God has chosen you. He has already done the deciding on his fact, on his part. It's just our part that remains. So this covenant was established in the blood of sacrificed animals, and God kept his covenant with Abraham. And there was a language then that this promise, that this uh, plan that God had was going to come through the death, blood, and sacrifice of a living being. So we skip on to Leviticus 17, 11, where God says, for the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes the atonement for one's life. So God, again, is saying in the Old Testament and teaching his people, this is the way, this is the language that we need to have, that there is no forgiveness of sin without the blood, death, atonement, and sacrifice of an innocent being. So we learn in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We know that this is true, that death, that sin requires death in order for a payment. So the point is that a restored relationship with God requires payment for sin. This is God's justice. So we know this as a society, and I'll tell you how. Um, I was chosen for jury duty in October. I went three-day selection process, and it was a murder trial. It was actually a very big deal. It was like 20 counts, and it was three days, and I was sitting in um, the courtroom for three long, torturous days, just sitting there waiting to be called. 
But they explained to us, they introduced the defendant, the prosecutors, all of the players, all of the charges. We had to, he stood up, turned around, looked at all of us, and we had to answer the question, do you know this guy? Do you know any of his people? Have you ever heard anything of this trial? And we had to answer yes or no. I didn't know him, but I got a really good look at him, this, this man who's accused of murder. And then we hear all of, of the charges. And as I'm sitting in this courtroom waiting to see if I would be chosen, I was thinking, hmm, what if I were the mother of the victim? What would I want to see happen if this man is proven guilty? I would want to say that the value of my child's life is worth his death. I would want him to die. And that's outside of anything. This is just written in my mother's heart. I'm not thinking from a biblical perspective. I'm just thinking, what if I were in her position? You have destroyed part of my life by taking my child. And you, my name is Inigo Montoya. <laughs> you have killed my father. Prepare to die. I am now down for how many accents I could do in this sermon, right? <laughs> Two plus my own. There is something in our culture, in our literature, that says if you kill something that is precious to me, you must die. There must be a penalty. If you don't pay, you have devalued the life of this. And even as a society and as a culture, we know that if we forgive someone of their sins, if we let them go, get them off the hook as a society, that there's an inerrant risk that now we have not punished evil and that we have tolerated it. And now as a society, there is a greater risk because of what we've done. So as a society, we know that when there is sin, when evil has been done, there must be a penalty or a payment for it. And that is reflective of God's heart. This is the law of God. But then I was also thinking in that day, what if the murderer were my son? I would be pleading and saying, I held this baby when he was little. I kissed him. I nurtured him. I did him the best that could. You should see all the trauma that happened in his life. You should see what led him up to this point. He is really a good, valuable boy. He doesn't deserve this. He needs another chance, and I would be begging for mercy for my son. Even if he were guilty, I would be begging for mercy for my son. And so we look at the tracks that were going on this Polar Express, and we're looking, and God agrees with my merciful heart. And he said, that's right. I want to give mercy. And God agrees with the justice that must come. And he says, there must be payment for sin, and it must occur. So these are the two rails of God's heart, that he is not unloving because he is just. And he is not unloving because he is merciful. His love must incorporate his justice and his mercy. And we know that. We can see that. But we are very squeamish in our culture and society because, as Tim Keller says, at the center of our religion is the bloody death of a helpless victim. 
That's what we've got. And we have a hard time in our culture. We ordered our meat for Christmas, and it will be all trimmed and packaged and presented to us, and we will not have to look it in the eye. <laughs> we will bake it, and it will taste good, and, and that kind of thing. We are very squeamish in our culture with the language of sacrifice and the requirement. So the second stop in this is the practice. So now from the time of Abram, where there's God's chosen people established in this tribe, they have grown into a nation in Egypt, and they have grown from an esteemed group of people to a two million person enslaved people group under the evil um, regime of Pharaoh, which... I don't think any of you will be strangers to the story of Moses and the ten plagues and how the people of Egypt, of Israel, were rescued from, from the slavery. So God provides a leader, Moses, to deliver his people, and nine plagues are performed, miraculous plagues, and none of those are successful in releasing those people, but one final plague will come. And this is where we pick up the story about how God is going to deliver his people. It's Exodus 12, starting in verse 21. Then Moses summoned all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go at once and select the animals for your families and slaughter for the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it into the sides the Dip it into the blood in the basin and put some of the blood on the top and both sides of the doorframe. None of you shall go out of the door of your house until morning. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the doorframe, and he will pass over that doorway. He will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Obey these instructions as a lasting ordinance for you and your descendants. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you as promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does this ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses in the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. And then the people bowed down and worshiped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And at midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all of his officials and all of the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. I don't like really bad guys. I don't really like evil things. I like happy stories. But God is telling us through these people in this land that evil is real and that he is stronger than evil and that there is a way of escape. And so his promise involves, and interestingly, God sets up this system and he begins 
this judgment and deliverance of sin and evil and this separation of his people from bondage with a celebration, a barbecue, actually. They're saying, bring these lambs into your house. Count how many heads you need. Get in with your neighbors if you need to share a lamb in previous verses. And then slaughter the lamb at twilight and roast it over the fire and eat it and stay in your houses. It sounded a lot like Christmas to me. Kind of like what we would do sometime in the, in the holiday season. It was just really interesting to me that the word of the Lord came and Israel obeyed. And it came with a celebration and, and it reminded me of worship of how we gather together as a family and we put God in his proper place. And we say, you are God and we are going to tell you who you are. You are the creator. You are the king. You are the redeemer. You are our friend. We're going to say who you are. And then when your word comes down to us, we're going to align ourselves with us out of obedience because this is our part of worship, is our obedience to who God is and his instruction for us. So that's what they're doing. They started this plan of salvation and deliverance with worship and with a celebration. But the celebration didn't come without a cost because I was studying and reading these. Um, it said to bring the lamb, one year old, into your household for 14 days and care for it and then slaughter it. How would that go over in your family? I know I'm looking with the lens maybe of American culture and how crazy we are about our pet animals. Guilty. I'm nuts about my little dog. But I can't imagine with your children and your relatives bringing a little lamb and caring for it for a week. I have to think that God is developing a connection and affection for the being that is going to be the atoning blood. I also read a story about a lady who went for an experiential um, um, instructional time in Israel for learning how to be a shepherd. And part of that was slaughtering the sheep. And she commented that she wanted the experience of slaughtering the sheep because it's so rich in the history of, of Israel. And so she said that they just called the sheep over. They just said, come here, sheep, come on over. And the sheep very timidly walked over and sat next to her, and it leaned against her, and it didn't fight her. I have to fight my dog to get a leash on sometimes, so you can imagine. It didn't fight. And she did what she had to do, and she cried. She wept because the animal so timidly trusted her and did what it was supposed to do in this and seemingly gave up its life willingly that she kept that fleece. She bought that fleece and kept it, even though it was somewhat bloodstained, and she hung it in her office because that life now had value to her, and that sacrifice meant something to her. There was an affection. There was a kinship that was developed out of that. And there is, you're already getting the par parallels, right? I'm not going to have to do much at the end. But then following that, following God's instructions and putting that blood on the doorpost and staying in their house as the destroyer went over and as there was great wailing in all of Egypt, all of their firstborns were saved 
but not their lambs. So there was not a household in Egypt there where there wasn't some death, some grief, because salvation requires sacrifice. And then followed by that is the worship, their salvation, and then their deliverance. Okay, now get up and go. You've been delivered. Even the enemies are sending them out, giving them gold. Go, go, go. And this begins their lifelong journey of deliverance. So God's plan for redemption comes through worship, salvation, and deliverance. So now the... The language for the Israelite people has been established, and they celebrate the Passover year after year after year with the lambs and the hyssop and the unleavened bread, and it's part of their worship, and it's part of their language, and they know what the lamb means, and they develop that affection, and they slaughter that lamb, and they go through a lot of thousands of years, and 2,000 years later, we come to the provision of the Lamb of God. And this language has been established, and this celebration has been established. And in John 1.35, John the Baptist says, the next day John was there again with his, two of his disciples, and when he saw Jesus passing by, he says, look, the Lamb of God. They had already developed the language of sacrifice. They were already expectant for the promise that God has, had, had brought to them. They already had been practicing this atonement through the blood of animals. And when Jesus came on, because of their culture, because of their language, they had the language to say, there is the Lamb of God. They were expecting of that. So then we bring to the Last Supper, a Passover celebration. And there is Jesus. It was interesting to me that in the Passover meal, in the Last Supper, there's no lamb mentioned. Maybe they had it, maybe they didn't. It's not mentioned in there. But to me, when Jesus presents the blood and the bread, I can see him very obviously to these Jewish people who speak the language of sacrifice, presenting himself to them as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And when he says, this is the cup, the blood, my blood, this is the bread, my body, he's even more identifying with them this language of sacrifice, that I am the sacrifice, the eternal sacrifice. And in 1 Peter 1.18, it says, For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed by the empty way of life handed down to you from ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Even after the sacrifice of Jesus and the resurrection on the cross, the new and early church is speaking the language of the Lamb of God to one another and saying, this is the Lamb who's taken away the sin of the world. And in Revelation 7, 14, it says, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And in Revelation 12, 11, it says, They triumphed over him, Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. So the salvation comes through the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb is Jesus. So just as 
The Passover was a celebration of salvation and deliverance of the Lord. So is communion, our celebration in our day that reminds us of the celebration and deliverance provided for the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus. He was our provision. So our last stop, how do we make this Christmassy? What does this have to do with Advent? Well, today as we're lighting these candles, last week the candle of the Advent represented hope, and this week our candle is peace. And rather than just a feeling cozy, being in by a fire on a warm night, the peace that we desperately need is our peace with God and a right relationship with him. Peace in our identity of who we are as God's children. And we need peace in our relationships with one another. And God has set up for us, this is the way that I have set for you. We worship God in his rightful place when we come together. We cover ourselves with the blood of Jesus to experience the salvation of sin. And we remind ourselves through the, the Passover meal of the new covenant in Christ's blood, we remind ourselves what Jesus has done for us. And we set out on this lifelong journey of deliverance. Just as the Israelites left Egypt and it took them a lifetime, 40 years, to enter into the promised land, so will it take us our lifetimes to experience more and more and more of the deliverance that Jesus has bought for us with his blood. And that's what we do here at Crestmont. We press into that healing. We press into that deliverance. We want to know more and more. And I am not done being delivered. I am not finished being healed, nor will I be in this lifetime. And there is a final judgment day coming. We're not through with this story yet. And we need to be standing in our doorways, just as the Israelites did with the blood above and the blood on the side and the blood on the other side, giving them a perfect picture of what their Redeemer was going to look like on the cross. We need to be standing under the blood of Christ because he will come in power to judge. He will free us ultimately from our enemies. He will separate us from sin, and we need to be standing under the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the only one who can forgive us of our sins and create that right relationship with God. 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, Get rid of the old yeast so that you may have a new unleavened batch as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, keep, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. There is such a comfort in standing and celebrating the salvation that we have been given, the deliverance that we are experiencing through our lifetime, and ultimately the promised land of living with God forever. So this Advent, the peace that we celebrate today with the lighting of this candle has come to us through the shed blood of the innocent lamb, Jesus. So no, I am not a good person. But Jesus has shown me that I am valuable to him. 
So if anybody says, I'm a good person, you don't have to say, no, you're not. You can change the language to say, you're a valuable person because Christ has died for you. None of us are good enough, not even in our own eyes. But we are so valuable that the most precious one of God was spared on our behalf. And we celebrate that God will judge sin, but I am forgiven because of Jesus. 